G'day and welcome back to the fifth and final episode, barring our bonus episode that we'll discuss later, of our journey back 20 years to the release of Melbourne alt-rock three-piece Something for Kate's much-loved third album, Echolalia. I'm your host, Steve Bell. Any listeners who haven't checked out the earlier episodes yet, it's probably best if you do that first and join us here later. quick recap. We followed something for Kate from their formation right through to the recording of the third album Echolalia, writing struggles, overseas sorties, the whole shebang. Then last episode tracked them navigating friendly fire from within their label Sony in the form of some pretty fierce pushback about the merits of lead single Monsters, which was quickly resolved and put behind them. John O'Donnell, at the time head of the band's label Murmur, who were working under the umbrella of Sony and who bore the brunt of Dennis Hanlon's ire, still remembers feeling quietly vindicated by the success of Monsters when it came out and became an instant hit. It was totally like, well, fuck you. (laughs) Um, And, of course, you know, all of the great bands or so many of the great bands in musical history are those bands that have taken three you know, two, three, four or five albums to come through. Um, and I knew that, and I, you, you never know to what level, but I knew that Sonic for Kate had that potential and had that in them and that Paul's songs, you know, um, and the band songs, but, you know, Paul's the primary songwriter and the primary lyricist. Those songs were going to make connections with people who were well on their way to doing that. Um, you know, Beautiful Sharks, had done extremely well in the Hottest 100. It had gone gold um, in its, you know, this is before Echolalia was made. It had gone gold. So it was, you know, it was a lot easier to go gold in those days. There were different kind of times. But, um, yeah, it was something that we were watching every step along the way, and they are all forward steps, and they are all... Um, Rather, you know, if they weren't big ones, they were medium ones, and we knew we were onto something, and we knew, and we knew that they were a special band making special records that were going to connect with people. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very much a victory, um, you know, for the good guys, I guess you'd say, um, in that way, because it was, you know, to get. I think it was six or seven ARIA nominations, um, you know, to be named as Triple J's Australian Album of the Year, to come number two in the Hottest 100, um, and for the album to debut number two was, you know, it was just like bang, 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 bang. So we knew that they'd made a special record. It was just convincing some of the powers that be. For a while there upon its release, Monsters seemed omnipresent pouring out of radios, bars, cars, clubs, you name it. Traction that bassist Stephanie Ashworth found quite surprising given the song's comparatively dark subject matter. It was a time when um, we definitely heard a lot of monsters. We heard that song a lot. <laughs> and um, uh, it stays It stays in here. It's one of those songs that I would never have to... Um, think about or, or, you know, rehearse or uh, it's just in there for life. (laughs) 
It was everywhere for a while there. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, but and you know, it, it didn't occur to me at the time, but a few people have said to us um, in more recent years that you know it's quite unusual, really, for a song that had that subject matter to be so popular. Um, because I, I think you know there wasn't necessarily a lot of bands writing songs about um, you know their personal demons um, and depression and um, you know not being you know the subject matter of that song it was um, it was definitely not something that you heard a lot about in popular music and I think maybe that that possibly connected with people that you know this wasn't another song about cars and girls. Um, and and rock and roll and and having a great time. It was it was a more of an honest account about what was going on in someone's mind that wasn't necessarily um, a fun place to be, um, but ultimately kind of uplifting as well. Frontman Paul Dempsey, something for Kate's chief sonic architect, famously dislikes discussing the lyrics of his songs, preferring to leave them open to interpretation but he admits that there are some distinct lyrical threads running through Echolalia. I think with the with a bit of hindsight and everything, you can probably detect that, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess it's, it's a mix of, like, anxiety and curiosity, and they kind of drive each other, you know. The, the hyper-curiosity about the world and the universe and the nature of reality and why anything is the way it is and, you know, the whole kind of existentialist question, like, that that's the sort of curiosity, but, you know, it also drives this anxiety because it's like, you know, it's just, uh, what the fuck, you know? Like, well, um, so they, they kind of feed into each other and um, so... You know, that, that's definitely a thing that runs through it, but I guess sometimes it's on a personal level. Um, like a song like Feeding the Birds and Hoping for Something in Return is obviously a very kind of internal, personal anxiety. It's kind of a song about a panic attack, um, which I, you know, had enough of at that point. He sees streets waiting for to decide Forcing directions on the air Insisting And he wants to move it up He wants to move across Anything, just anything city that rumbles like an impatient child he hears everything Don't know the sound of other parts of the record I think songs like um, Jerry Stand Up and 20 Years it's more externalized it's more about you know how people live how other people live their lives 
Um, and I think both of those songs are kind of about, you know, people who are in like dead end jobs or, or careers that they don't even enjoy. And they're just going through their existence doing something they don't even like doing. And it's sort of asking like, what, why, like, how should we live? You know, how, how are we supposed to live our lives to the fullest? Um, I was 24 years old. Um, so I was probably also questioning myself, like, should I be doing this? Is this completely self-indulgent to be, you know, can I do this for a living? Can I, can I even make music and make records for a living? Or am I, am I kidding myself? Or, um, so there's a lot of, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Echolalia finally came out on 22 June 2001. John Howard was Prime Minister. Ansett Airlines had just collapsed, and the first Australian series of Big Brother had just premiered. On the Australian album chart, the Moulin Rouge soundtrack had just replaced Tool's Lateralis at number one. That soundtrack's 11-week run at the top of the charts ended by another soundtrack, Bridget Jones' Diary. Over on the singles chart, Angel by Shaggy featuring Ravon was in the middle of an eight-week stretch at the top, with the next three artists to hit number one being Uncle Cracker, Lifehouse and Bob the Builder. It's a quality time in music. Reviews for Echolalia were great. Juice magazine gushed about Trina's work, calling the album a collection of songs with a production value that actually does them justice and lauding the band's new quieter aesthetic as a velvet glove on an iron fist. While Ages EG Guide said, both lyrically and musically, this is first class all the way. As John intimated earlier, Ekolali would peak at number two on the ARIA charts, quickly go platinum, and be voted the best album of 2001 by Triple J listeners. Objectively a triumph. Of course, releasing an album comes with all of the attendant obligations like press and promotion. I vividly recall interviewing Paul and Steph in person for a cover story in the salubrious surrounds of the staff kitchen and the old time-off offices in Brisbane's Fortitude Valley, no doubt a period highlight for all concerned. Stephanie remembers these press obligations being like the calm before the storm, the storm being something for Kate's relentless 2001 tour schedule. Just, you know, the incredible amount of touring and, um, and, and a lot of interviews and a lot of TV and press and, you know, back then there was so much more music television. There was so much more um, music content in popular culture. So, you know, um, these days, as you would know, um, you barely find a music column in a newspaper anymore and there's barely any um, live music on television anymore. Um, so I, I suppose looking back at all the old footage and all the old TV shows we used to do and um, old magazines and, and, you know, everything being digital now, and um, it's kind of sad that a lot of that stuff's not around anymore. Um, and, you know, I miss, I miss a lot of the music TV shows. Um, yeah, that, that was sort of something that, that I thought about. Um, but I think, you know, generally we were probably so caught up in the whole whirlwind of the endless cycle of recording and, and, and writing and rehearsing and releasing and going on the campaign trail. And, you know, we were so, it was so like relentless um, that I, I, all I think about from that period is just like flying and driving and flying and driving, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, just 
just coordination and, you know, logistics. I forget how much stuff we did and, and, you know, look, 20 years later and, like, obviously everything's very different in the world right now, but um, it's interesting, you know, just talking to our children who have no understanding of what has happened before them. Um, and, I, you know, I realised that, yeah, we, we definitely have done a lot of stuff, a lot, um, but you sort of, when it's passed, you sort of forget about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's easy to forget how much, how much you get around and how much you, you, you um, achieve in terms of um, touring and, um, yeah, all those, all those things that we did. Um, but, yeah, a really, a really busy, happy time, really productive. I think Paul was really happy because, you know, he, he, he mostly feels good when he's busy, when he's productive. Um, and he can't sit around. He's not someone who can sit around. So I do remember that that period of being um, insane, but but in a happy way, in a in a great way. Drummer Clint Hindman remembers things being such a whirlwind that he barely realised at the time how much was actually happening. When you're in it, when you're doing it, you don't notice it as much. It's not until someone comes and tells you, or you know, one of your mum's friends tells you that they've heard you here that you really go, oh, okay, this, you know, because Oh, our band's really taken off at the moment. I um, like I said, you're in it, you're caught up in it. You don't really, um, yeah, you don't know. It's it's it is. It's 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 it all comes down to the, the neighbours or the um or your brother's friends, you know, telling you that he heard it. I think it's um, yeah, that's that's when it sinks in. It's when you when you look back on it. It's like when we did our twentieth anniversary tour, and we looked back on everything. That was when I looked back and thought, shit, we did a lot of stuff. I didn't realise. I was too busy at the time just in it you know um and we you know we're all pretty look i think we're all pretty humble you know we don't we didn't in you know we, we went yeah we're just humble like you don't you don't think about it as much until now okay time to introduce one more voice one that most of you will already know really well 20 years ago as echolalia began reverberating and introducing something for kate to whole new audiences some of these new fans began absorbing the band's music and mindset and incorporating them into their own artistic endeavours. These days, Missy Higgins is one of Australia's most beloved singer-songwriters. Her five albums have sold over a million copies and she's won nine arias. But 20 years ago, she was an aspiring songwriter still in high school, one who quickly fell under Echolalia's spell. I think that Echolalia was my first introduction to something for Kate. Um, I discovered them in year 12 in my final year of high school. And, um, yeah, that album, I, I really can't even remember how I discovered it. It was probably through Triple J because I listened to Triple J every morning while getting ready for school. Um, and that album just completely spoke to me at that time. I'm not quite sure why. I think it was something to do with the headspace that I was in and the things that I was grappling with about the world and about my existence and meaning and, and identity um, and something about just the sonic landscape of that album, but also the, the, the lyrical content that just really made me fall deeply in love with it. I remember feeling like, Paul's melodies really kind of rubbed against the instrumentation in this kind of really 
um, uh, almost kind of ironic, minory kind of way. I don't really know how, how else to describe it, but, um, you know, he'd often sing the note just above um, the note of, of the chord. So it kind of, it really, there was, there was tension between the music and the lyrics. And I loved the way that he did that and he played around with his voice to make, um, yeah, to make that kind of, um, that kind of, that friction really tell the story. And I learned, I think, a lot about melody writing, about um, kind of song structure from, from figuring out those songs and, and how they worked and how they, um, conveyed their emotions. Fantastic. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think it was definitely how the lyrics and the melody work together. I was writing songs. I was, um, cause I'd won Triple J Unearthed that same year. So my, my final year yeah. of high school, yeah, yeah. um, with my song All For Believing. Um, so I'd been writing for a few years before then, since I was about 15. Um, but I think at that point, that was really when things started to, like when my sound really started to come together and I was looking for, um, artists that I could kind of pull from and identify with to kind of create my own, my own sound and trying to find something original with a combination of, you know, of, of artists that I found inspiring. Missy was even inspired enough to write Paul a letter letting him know just how much his music meant to her. I did. I wrote a fan letter to Paul. I can't I wish I I wish I'd kept a copy of it because I can't <laughs> remember what it said. But um I'm sure it was something to do with how deeply that album spoke to me and and how it had kept me company, you know, through my my school years and um I was so shocked to actually meet him after I'd written him that letter because I think at the time I'd I had a couple of connections um, with record companies because um, there was a, a couple of people trying to sign me so I remember using those connections to to get a contact for him <laughs> and um, yeah and so I, I maybe it was even an email it was probably an email I think emails had just kind of started <laughs> back then and um and then I remember going to his concert and because I'd, I'd signed to this record label, they said that I could go back and meet him afterwards and I was so starstruck. Um, I remember just kind of, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's so tall. <laughs> it's so intimidating. Um, and this guy's been like the soundtrack to my, you know, to my high school. So, yeah, that was kind of amazing and embarrassing at the same time. Um <laughs> But then after that year, I got asked to go and play in East Timor for the troops. And um, Paul was playing for the troops solo. So we got to go on a little tour together with Killing Heidi. And um, yeah, and so we kind of got to know each other through that, which was really lovely. And I got to listen to him playing every night for the soldiers. Um, and yeah, he actually, he was the one who recommended that I listen to Fiona Apple, who then became a huge influence on me as well. So I have to thank him for that. Today, Missy feels vaguely mortified over her fangirl display, but luckily Paul, these days a close friend, doesn't really remember her fan missive. She's talked about this before and 
I honestly, I don't recall. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't say I, I recall. We, I mean, you know, in in two thousand two thousand one, you know, most of the you know these days people leave messages on Facebook or whatever. But we used to get a lot of letters. We have we do have like bags of letters that we that we were sent over the years. Um, so I'm sure that we have it, but yeah, I, I, I don't recall it specifically. Paul does, however, admit feeling pretty humbled that his own music could in any way inspire an artist the calibre of Missy. It's hard to wrap your head around. Like, it's hard to actually believe it. <laughs> you know, like, someone can say that to you, but you kind of go, yeah, really? Like, I don't know. I mean... She's an extraordinarily talented person. It's you kind of go. It's hard to imagine how you could have influenced that in any way. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, shortly after Echolalia came out, you know, in between all those tours I mentioned earlier, managed to get to East Timor for a couple of weeks uh, along with Missy, and I think she was seventeen or eighteen at the time. She just won Unearthed. On Triple J, uh, so that's where I met her first and her dad, um, and that was a lovely time. Like getting to know her and, and like killing Heidi were, were on that tour as well, and uh, it was a really nice time. And it was you know just um, very exciting to you know to watch her go just up. You know, just yeah, it's cool. A few years back in two thousand and fourteen. Missy Higgins released an album of covers by Aussie artists called Oz. And the opening number? A beautiful rendition of Echolalia album track, You Only Hide. So I keep watch And you keep breaking Break information to become someone else And your eyes become corridors Where I wander with a candle Calling out to you you only hide because um it was just it was it was one of their slower more kind of emotive songs and I just loved the line you only hide because you know I'll find you because I I guess I could totally relate you know I'd done that to a lot of people you know you run away because you know the other person's going to chase you um but yeah, I mean, I, I chose You Only Hide to cover because I felt like I could really sing that in my own voice, but I loved so many of their songs. I really related to that feeling of, of you know, just being surrounded by insanity and standing in the middle of chaos trying to make sense of it all. And that's what so many of their songs seem to be about. 
you know, like trying to understand myself and where I stood in the middle of it all and trying, trying to make sense of, you know, this crazy world around me. Um, they, there seem to be a lot of pointers in there too to kind of depression or struggling with some sort of monster inside you, um, kind of wrestling with the darkness within. And I was such a deep thinker as as a kid back then that I I uh, I really found solace in those words. Missy even believes that Paul's vocals subtly affected her own distinctly Aussie singing style. I think I was inspired by um, Paul's Australian accent. It's not crazy strong like mine ended up being, <laughs> but there was a few different artists that I was listening to at the time. I was listening to The Waifs and and something for Kate. Um, and, you know, I think every singer that I listened to that sung in, a, in an Australian accent, I just, it just, um, I don't know, it accumulated in um, me kind of developing my own accent when I sang. And it, it just, it made me feel better about being an Australian singer as opposed to just a, a generic singer. I thought this, this, this speaks to me more. This, this is closer to my identity. And as my music and my lyrics were, they were so earnest, you know, they were so like ripped right from the heart that I thought, I don't know, it just didn't seem right to sing such personal music in someone else's voice in an American accent. So, yeah, something about those, those guys that sung with an Aussie accent um, really spoke to me. I thought, yep, that's me. I'll take that. I'll do that. Something for Kate were nominated for six awards at the 2001 Arias, Album of the Year, Best Group, Best Alternative Release, Best Cover Art, which was done by Stephanie, as well as Single of the Year and Best Video for Monsters. But sadly, they didn't win any, with their good mates Powderfinger sweeping all before them on their Odyssey Number no. 5 Blitz. Paul remembers not placing a whole heap of importance on winning such awards anyway. When you get nominated for six Arias, you have to go. Um, you have to be there and you can't sort of go, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going. Um, that's not really an option. So, uh, you know, you have to go. You have to do the red carpet thing and, you know, the pictures and the, the interviews and stuff. So it, it just goes with the territory. It's fine. It's good. Um, I mean, it's all fun. You know, it's not... and. I'm not competitive about music. I didn't, you know, I didn't um, care whether we won or lost. It was. It's nice to be nominated. It's nice to be appreciated at all. It's. It's nice to even be in that conversation. So you know, it's all good stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't attach a whole lot of importance to awards. It was a really busy, busy year. Um, yeah, like we did the when Monsters came out, we did a national tour just on the back of that single, which was a long tour as well. I think it was like 30 shows. And then the album came out and we did another tour again, you know, 25, 30 shows. And then virtually straight after that, we went straight out with Powderfinger, which was also another really long tour. And then straight after that, I think we went to Europe with Silverchair. Uh, and then I think we came back and pretty much got went straight on the big day out run. It, yeah, it was kind of relentless and non-stop, but, you know, as I say, that was 
that was kind of our happy place. Stephanie also recalls not being surprised at all when their Brisbane friends took home the Aria chocolates. We're very good friends with Powderfinger, but I think we're a very different sort of a band and we're a band who is not going to have that kind of widespread kind of mainstream appeal so much. It's actually surprising that it's connected with the amount of people it has because I think I think we're... Um, we're not an easy band to, um, you know, like a lot of people would be put off by um, what we're singing or what Paul's singing about, and the there's a there's a darkness, or you know, there's always been a melancholy and a darkness to what we do. Um, that a lot of people, I imagine, would just not be able to relate to, um, and. Um, so I don't think we ever expected that we were going to be, you know, um, uh, even even um, to have to have sold as many records or you know to have done what we've done. I think in a lot of ways we're still sort of <laughs> a little bit surprised by that um, because yeah, it is you know the subject matters are, are, are a little un- they're not they're not the su- the usual subject matters of the medium of rock and roll. And I think when you when you've challenged that a bit, um, you're going to push a lot of people away, um, which which we we're not scared to do. And and it's not why I guess that's not why we we chose to do this. Um, so it, it didn't surprise us at all um, that you know Powderfinger would would um, you know win all the areas or you know be you know be a lot more of a successful band um, uh, commercially than us. Um, we're like the weird little brother. Ekalalia would eventually come out on Sony subsidiaries all over the world, including Red Ink in the States. But Clint remembers that timing wasn't on their side, especially in relation to the beautifully rendered film clip for Monsters, which found them walking through a cityscape with ash raining down from the sky above. We did, it, we did three or four tours over there, um, a lot harder. A lot, I think the timing, the timing was September 11. So we got screwed by that pretty heavily. Um, I've given the video to Monsters being what it was, you know, things falling from the sky and us walking into a building. And that was the video that we were going to go out with in the States. And um, clearly that wasn't going to happen. Um, it was, you know, we were, it was definitely a victim of bad timing with that record coming out over there. I remember um, Paul and Steph actually were over visiting. They went on a holiday after the record came out and they were visiting Trina in New Orleans when September 11 happened. So they got stuck there. And I remember we got, we got nominated for all these ARIA awards and I was left by myself to go to Channel V. Like leaving me by myself is a bad thing. Like you trust me, the other two guys know, like I'm a liability. I've got to be like, you know, I can be a bit loose like that. <laughs> so I don't do a lot of interviews anymore. But, uh, but back then, I remember they were stuck in New Orleans and I was the guy who had to go to Channel B and do the interviews about the six ARIA Award nominations and all this sort of stuff happened. And then I think that year the ARIAs had a – it was just classic something for Kate. We were nominated for all these ARIAs. The record had all this claim. We were going to the States, but then September 11, you know, the bomb went and whatever, whatever happened. And then, yeah, it kind of made it a lot harder for us to follow up on all the stuff we were going to follow up on, um, which is a shame because we had a lot of good support over there a lot of good people at the label who were right behind it, but I think, yeah, it was just a, bit, a, a case of bad timing. The shows were great. Like, we had all the right people at the shows, a lot of stuff happening, but it was, it's like, my, I think one thing we realised, we had to, to, to make it in the States, you need to relocate, you need to be there, you need to be working, and you need to be on tours all the time. And I think um, 
don't know. It was just really hard for us. We just couldn't. I don't know. And, and like I said, the September 11 thing made it really hard for us to stay over there and, and do stuff. Um, I can't remember too much about that period, but we went to we went over to Europe and had a bit of a crack there and it, and it did pretty well there as well, all through Germany and, and, and some France. But, yeah, it just never really took. Like, you know, I think we've got a lot of – I know we have a lot of international fans where I can see like stuff come through, but we just never really, I don't know, never, just never able to crack into anything. And I think that's because, you know, we also are a kind of band that it's not a first listen band. It never has been, you know, the records take a while to sink in and, you know, we're not a, um, you know, we're never a cool band or a fashion or told to listen to. Like we just do our thing. And if it clicks with people, it clicks with people. And, um, you know, even to this day, you know, like people either love the band or they hate the band. These Rewind interviews go for a lot longer than what you actually hear in the finished product. And everybody was at pains to point out that in the overall scheme of the 9-11 tragedy, their inconvenience was pretty minuscule. And while they got some great reviews over in the States and played some really cool shows, Stephanie agrees that the timing of the US assault wasn't great. You know, we were signed with Sony and um, they are, it was an international, it was a global deal. And it was, you know, they really wanted the record to be... um, released overseas and um, we toured a lot actually in um, Europe more in Germany France places like that it actually it actually um, had more sort of connection in those areas than in say traditional areas like the states Um, and yeah unfortunately you know it's the classic I don't know if you've seen the video for monsters but it was about to be released when September 11 happened so um, you know that that just wasn't going to happen and, um, you know, it was a really disruptive time for a lot of bands and um, a, lo- a lot of um, bands had plans for tours and releasing, which got derailed by all of that. Um, and I, and, but I, there were more tours and more tours after that and, di- and different releases in different countries um, under different deals. Um, but America was something at that time that it was just, you know, for whatever reason, just didn't it didn't eventuate um, on on the level that um, I think Sony would have liked. Um, Paul toured there a lot solo, um, and and does quite well over there solo. But the for the band, it was just too it was too big of a um, a project. I think at the time. Despite the timing, Paul has nothing but fond memories of his American experience around the time of Echolalia. We were just excited to go be able to go over there and play shows um you know in terms of like cracking it or whatever i mean i think i've probably made it clear enough by now that we're our expectations and aspirations um have never been too wild or unrealistic so to us it was more like hey you know we get to go and play shows in the states and that's fun um but yeah i remember getting to New York and, you know, going into the label and, you know, meeting all the, the Red Ink people and, and, you know, they were all great and they, they were all very enthusiastic about the record and so that was exciting and um, actually, you know, uh, the guy who was kind of looking after the record there um, was a guy called Dave Wallace um, who, you know, has um, is one of my best friends today still. Um, there's actually a song on... Our latest record that's kind of about Dave. So, um, so yeah, we made some really good friends, uh, some lifelong friends, and 
it was an exciting time. It's always, it's always exciting to go overseas and play music. The, the shows were fantastic and the response was really good. And, you know, I think Monsters, you know, got played a bunch of places. And, uh, and you know, I think there's, you know, there's still, we still have a lot of listeners in the States today, you know, because of that time, because of the, those first shows we played over there and, and, you know, people hearing us on college radio or whatever. Um, so... It was really good. Ekalalia's producer, Trina Shoemaker, believes that to break America, you need luck and a smash hit single. Something for Kate, Workitus didn't have that single song like, you know, um, the NXS song, um, Slide Over Here and Get It. What You Need. Yeah, What You Need. I mean, let's just all agree on something. That song was a huge hit because... Mm. It's fucking cool. It was, not everybody gets a song like that. It's rare. It's extremely rare. Um, and so when you think of Australia, you think of Midnight Oil, In Excess, of course, ACDC, but they almost felt more British. You know, these bands ended up with massive appeal hits. Something for, for Kate, we're at the point in their career where one of their songs could have been that massive appeal hit, but I don't think that they did write that massive appeal hit. Their lyrics were dense. Their, you know, Paul's songwriting was artistic and fluent and more like a novel than a hit song. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so, but that shouldn't mean that they don't like go on to have a really, you know, well-recognized career in the States. But I think that radio at that point wasn't, you know, they were, they were all about Pearl Jam. They were all about Soundgarden. They were all about that Seattle sound. And, you know, Paul has a, something that's utterly unique to him. He would have to write that single song that breaks through for whatever bizarre reason. And then suddenly that's the huge hit. And then your enti the entirety of your worth is suddenly recognized. I watch it happen over and over again. It's not about talent as much as it is penning that one song that opens every door for the rest of your entire career. Then Murmurhead John O'Donnell also believes that the timing wasn't great for Echolalia to crack the States, but he's coming from more a musical perspective. I guess I'd say we're in the post-Silverchair and Ammonia glow, as in that, that had passed, and also alternative bands had kind of, you know, we're talking about late 2000, early 2001, um, pop music had kind of risen again, not that it had ever gone away, but alternative music was not what it was during the 90s. And there wasn't a lot of support for the band in, in the Sony group of companies around the world. People were, you know, and it's typical, people very often in other territories have their own priorities for their own signed artists and um, they always needed to be convinced again we're in different paradigms now but they always needed to be convinced um, to secure a release and for a label to get behind it in other parts of the world and we never cracked that nut with something for Kate and I, I feel bad about that because I think Beautiful Sharks and um, Echolalia and that official fiction had the songs and the band had the production and the 
the swagger to pull it off, but um, they never really properly got the chance. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the blessing and the curse of signing to a label like Sony or any of the major labels in those, <coughs> in those days, because you had to kind of, um, you know, beg and bow to be taken seriously from the late perspective anyway. That overseas stuff's all just by the by anyway. Sapnificator, an Aussie band, and Echolalia's success here was unequivocal. Before we look at how the album's legacy is endured, a couple of little loose threads to tidy up. As we just heard when discussing the ARIA nominations, Echolalia's beautiful and distinctive artwork was the domain of bassist Stephanie. Actually, Paul's niece, um, Stephanie, uh, well, both of our nieces, I should, our niece, I should say, um, uh, we were not married at the time, so that's why I, I refer to her as Paul, Paul's niece. Um, but she came home from school with this project um, where she, from memory, had to, um, it, it had to involve a jigsaw puzzle. Children being often lateral thinkers, um, she had actually stacked the pieces up on top and glued them on top of each other to make sculpture, <laughs> you know, instead of doing the jigsaw puzzle. And it just, I think Paul saw it and was like, I love, I love how laterally she's thinking um, in, in this project. Um, and it, I think it just sparked an idea in him um, that we should, you know, um, re- remake what her original project was and um, use it as the basis for the album cover. Um, just the idea of like the, bra- the how the brain works laterally and how and just complete uh, approaching something in a, in a way that's quite unique um, and not the way that I guess we're programmed to um, to, to do things, to approach things. So uh, I did a whole lot of test shots. I was sort of getting you know interested in photography at the time and I did a whole lot of test shots and um, set it up and ended up working with a photographer, um, Jason Lucas, um, in Sydney. And then I sat down with um, the art department, um, with David Homer at the art department at Sony and we, um, you know, uh, sort of um, re-drafted and drafted and drafted and wanted to bring in some of the ideas of the, um, the lyrics onto the actual album cover which is why you see these lines going across it with um stand up sit down stand up sit down you know um uh yeah paul was really just into a lot of the sort of subtext and and um you know just approaching things in a um the way he always does with multi-layered just everything's multi-layered there's you know a whole lot of different perspectives and different layers of meaning to every song on that record. Um, and that's why he's always been so long on the records is because every line of every song he's agonised over for six months, you know, and that it's got, there's just all these different levels to every line of a something for Kate, you know, song. Um, so the artwork had to reflect that, um, the, those thought processes. Stephanie just referenced her and Paul being married. They wed in 2005 in a Las Vegas hotel room and now have two children together. But despite already being an established couple 20 years ago, around the time of Echolalia, back then they avoided discussing it or really even confirming it in the media, which as well as being entirely their prerogative, Stephanie simply attributes to the pair wanting their privacy. Because as soon as you do, 
the band gets reduced to being that, mm-hmm. you know. So as soon as as soon as people know that you know people in a band are, are married or are together, people again, it's a bit like the lyrics, you know. People um, approach the band with this preconceived idea, and that's all they can focus on. It's it's the only thing they can think about. And we we were a band who really just wanted people to listen to the songs and not get preoccupied with who who's with who and what's going on and um you know in our personal lives and because again it just sort of takes away from um from the songs which is why we're there um and um yeah i i I think um we're also extremely private people we always have been and um uh yeah i think i think we just felt like it was also just more tasteful just to leave that stuff behind and what about the album's title Echolalia, the word which pops up in the lyrics of Three Dimensions, refers to a psychiatric disorder where people mindlessly repeat noises and phrases they hear. But Paul explains that the album nearly carried the far less succinct title, Imagine My Surprise, when I woke up and found that my boat was missing. If you have Echolalia on CD, take out the inner clear part of the jewel case which holds the actual CD and you'll find that alternative title hidden there, written in full on the side flap. We have Thailand to thank uh, for, you know, the, the creation of this record in many ways. And we were on this little island and, the, you know, the only mode of transport from A to B were these uh, long-tail boats. Um, so I, it, was just, it was a conversation we had about, I don't know, we might have seen like one of the kind of local fisherman or whatever like walking around and it seemed like he couldn't find his boat or something because mm-hmm. a, a lot of these fishermen you know they they live on the island and you know um you know it's a very sort of um simple kind of existence that they you know that they fish they they ferry people around in their boats and then in the evenings you kind of see them sitting around a fire with their family eating and drinking and you know looks like a nice way to live um but um you know, you'd see the odd one who maybe looked like he'd had a bit too much to drink. <laughs> and then occasionally you might see someone who looked like they couldn't find their boat. Ekalali was far from a flash in the pan. It's success instant but ultimately enduring. Jonathan Williamson, at the time marketing manager at Murmur and listed in the credits as Minister for Propaganda, believes that the album announced something for Kate's arrival as serious players on the Australian scene. I think Ekalalia is is an album which was such a big step up for something for Kate um, sonically and creatively with a batch of songs which sort of pushed the envelope. Um, it was, it has all the hallmarks of something for Kate with that sort of um, guitar-driven sort of mathematical kind of timing and what have you but it also went into new territory it it swung a bit more it had a bit more soul uh and it's a it's a great sounding record uh and i think because it sort of really heralded heralded something for kate's arrival as a major artist in australia uh by way of pushing them out onto the main stage in festivals getting radio play, being across the TV and online, it it's probably the record that a lot of people 
um, where a lot of people discovered something for Kate for the first time. And that's probably why it, it stands out as one of their greats. Craig Matheson, who'd been headhunted by John O'Donnell to handle the labels A&R in Melbourne and is listed in the Echolalia credits as campaign volunteer, believes Echolalia to be the natural manifestation of the band's undeniable talents. It was like that continuation. You knew greatness was there. They made the record and it just got a reaction. You could, you know, everyone, when it got played to people, they just reacted strongly. Um, you know, it... It wasn't a sleeper record. It was it was very awake from the start, and you know, and it's a confident record. It's you know, sonically, it's very confident. It's got such texture and strength. You know, it's just in, implicitly got Paul in it. I mean, you know, right from the first line, which is you know, like something. Depending on on who it is, you can hear that first line, you know, about being held in midair. It's like it's a Tarkovsky film. It's a religious miracle. It's a scientific experiment. I mean, you know, that's Paul sort of summed up his his vision and how he sees the world. That uh, you know, he can he takes something very distinct like that, and then it resonates and it works for so many people. I mean, you know, people had a visceral reaction to a lot of those songs, starting with Monsters and going all the way through the record. You know, I remember shows where people were just screaming for album tracks on the tour afterwards, just screaming like it meant something to them if the band would even just play the song that dwelled inside them. So you you could just tell from the start and building and building that there was a connection and it just made perfect sense. It was a wonderful time, you know, momentum just feels really good. The late 2020 release of something for Kate's most recent album, The Modern Medieval, means that their canon is now seven albums deep. Echolalia isn't everyone's favourite album by the band, that's split pretty evenly, but it's probably considered by many to be their creative peak. We've discussed the 2010 book, 100 Best Australian Albums, we have two of the three co-authors, Craig and John, speaking here on the podcast. And Echolalia was listed in that tome at number 39, something for Kate's only entry, something that Paul largely puts down to good timing. I feel like Echolalia is no better or worse than any of our other records. To me, it's something for Kate uh, record number three. But I understand why it's the one that um, gets written about still. It's the one that, you know, we're, we're talking about still uh, because it, it just it dropped at a moment in time and everything fell into place and it, it sort of had its own little kind of runaway success and, and I think that's what the what the thing really is, is is you know there's success and then there's runaway success and I think by that you know a runaway success is it's something that's successful even like just because it is successful like it might it might begin being popular or successful because of its actual merits but then beyond that it just becomes talked about so much and the buzz around it becomes so loud that it develops this whole extra success that is more about the time and place and the zeitgeist and the you know the climate around it uh, it's more to do with that than it is the actual merits of the record or, you know, it just it becomes a sort of a, a cultural thing. And I think 
that's echolalia happens to be the record of ours that that happened to um, completely beyond our control. I mean, you know, we did our bit right. We made a good record. We, you know, we got a single on the radio and, you know, we, we sort of did our end of the deal. And then, you know, it was what happened was great. Um, and we're extremely fortunate and, and grateful for everything that happened. But at the same time, I just kind of feel like so much of it was just the time and place. And if that record came out now, you know, who knows? If that record came out, you know, in 2008, who knows? It was a different, it was just a different time, different everything. Um, it was just right place, right time. And it's a good record, but there's a lot of right place, right time about it. Um, so, you know, so it's in a book of, you know, great Australian records or whatever. But, you know, I think, I think our last record should be, it, it is, I'm not saying it should be in that book. I'm saying I think our last record is, you know, every bit as worthy um, if not more so. Clint agrees that the ongoing love for Echolalia mainly signifies it as the point when most people discovered the band. That was our period in time. That was the yeah, that was the time where something became launched, and I think that's what people remember. But yeah, you go to the fans. I think a lot of the fans go to Beautiful Sharks a lot and Official Fiction, uh, which are you know probably my two least favourite as a lot. But it's all about. I think. It's just all about the time that you discovered that band. I think we got discovered pretty heavily. A lot of people discovered us through Echolalia. Stephanie sees Echolalia as more an important stepping stone in something for Kate's ongoing evolution. I think that record is one of, you know, well, it's one of seven that we have. Um, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, people say, oh, it's your best record. And I don't think it is. Um, I, and I think, you know, of course, it's typical that the band would say that. Um, I think at, at that time we felt it was the best. It was, you know, we were able to articulate the ideas and the lyrics and everything as best we could, better than we had before. Um, I don't know that it is our best record. I, I in, in, in the big scheme of things, I think, of course, our most recent record is. Um, and I know that's, that's an eye roll moment. Um, I do, I do think Echolalia did manage to, um, I think Paul managed to articulate some things he really needed to say um, the best he'd been able to articulate them at the time. Um, and I, and I, think, I think he used the word efficient. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I think I was quite efficient on that record and he was happy to be efficient with his words, which is very Paul, very, um, you know, very science, very math, very, um, you know, precise um so uh yeah i guess i guess you know it's probably the record that um connected with the most people but i don't know i don't i think it's um i like to think that you know with every record we learn more and we get better at what we do and we'll leave the final thoughts in this echolalia rewind to the album's producer trina and her memories looking back on that time in her life i'm at a point in my career where I'm, I'm doing well, I have work, but I still, again, I still have to struggle. And I now find myself, you know, some would say, oh, you're turning into a veteran, you know, you're the sage, or you're just some old chick who still knows how to make records. You know, it, it, a lot of things go on as you get older. To have listened to this record all these years later in my studio where I mix almost, most of my money, my uh, living comes from mixing now, I'm, I'm almost, 
entirely a, a mixer for hire. Um, it just happened that way. And I'm a good mixer and I love mixing. So, but to put it on, on my speakers um, and feel so proud of it and so overjoyed at how damn good it is that along with knowing now that I'm in the you know top 50 records of all time in Australia, it vindicated a lot. It put me in a really good space. I thought you felt it then and you gave it up then and you're just doing the same thing now and it was real then and so there it's real now. It's huge. I'm thrilled and honored. So there you have it, Echolalia, as real now as it was back in 2001. Thanks so much for coming on this voyage with us. There is a bonus episode for you to check out, looking at the postponed national tour for Echolalia's 20th anniversary, as well as the communal power of the Something for Kate Live experience in general. Please check that out. Thank you so much to the band for their time, Paul, Stephanie and Clint, as well as our wonderful array of guests, Trina, John, Craig, Jonathan and Missy. It's been a whole lot of fun. I also need to give a shout out to Mariam Dibb for her amazing work helping to pull this together. Thanks as always for making everything run so smoothly. As always, thanks to the amazing Rewind team, our tireless engineer Zig and the show's producers Craig and Masty, and cheers again to our network partner Yamaha Headphones. If you have enjoyed the listen, please take a minute to rate and review Rewind on your favourite platform or app, or if you know someone who loves something for Kate, please give them a heads up. The word of mouth is super important. We'll leave you with the track which lent Echolalia its name, Three Dimensions, released as a single in August 2001 and rising to number 32 on the Australian Singles Chart.
again for checking out rewind please keep your eyes and ears peeled because we have some really exciting projects in the pipeline i'll catch you then rewind with steve bell is a podcast from the handshake agency network produced by craig treweek and andrew Mutt. recorded and engineered by zig parker theme music by dollar bar